Are we better off today than our ancestors were? If the imagination is what's controlling your mindset, then certainly you're going to conclude that yes, right now you're watching me from a different part of the world and learning as we speak. On the other hand, the wise among us are going to be more patient before they conclude because they know that there's a lot more behind this question. Many different types of cultures among Jewry are continuously arguing and debating and competing with each other. Some of those competitions are healthy, but some are unhealthy. Competing with whose food is better, traditions are better, forgetting what gave you the tradition in the first place. And in fact, why your form of Jewry in Libya, in Yemen, in Syria, in Iran, in Russia, or Poland. Why it even went on the map in the first place. And last but not least, when the competition is done in the right way, it's certainly healthy as it breeds more wisdom. When it's competed in the wrong fashion, it's one of the tools of Edom. And tonight you're going to see a real-life example of how this is utilized in both fashions and how it could help our communities, but also help our people in general. Enjoy, share, and be holy. We are back here on our uh, new week, Sunday night, Jewish Ashkafa series, and Baruch Hashem, we have another extraordinary installment, really building up on what we started last week in this new chapter. Uh, tonight, Shiu uh, is uh, kindly sponsored by the uh, descendants of uh, the Chazonish, uh, the Karelitz family. Uh, and uh, may Hashem bless them with bracha, tzlacha, refuah shlema, refuah nefesh, refuah aguf. Also, the uh, she will be for uh, the refuah shlema for Rabbi Ephraim ben Shulamit, Rabbanit Sara bat Anat, uh, Itamar ben uh, Sara, uh, Rabbanit Levana bat Sara, Avi Mori David ben Nesriya, Imi Morati Doris bat Jora, and all of Am Yisrael and all the righteous Noahides that continue to support all the amazing work by the organization. Uh, just as a reminder for you guys, we have this uh, new campaign uh, for uh, this uh, extraordinarily uh, monumental event uh, that we have uh, coming up in just the next couple of months, uh, which is also being combined with our annual campaign for the uh, special prayers that uh, some of you have us pray for you during the uh, Judgment Day of uh, Rosh Hashanah or Yom Kippur. Uh, so uh, this year, if you go to the uh, uh, BH, uh, um, RH, or uh, the uh, BHYK websites, which are the campaign websites, you'll be led to the uh, new campaign website, which is actually BHSHAS, BHSHAS.org, uh, BHSHAS.org. This is the uh, campaign poster, or at least one of them, which is uh, this year as a bonus for everybody. And really for Klal Israel, uh, we're uh, having our annual event uh, be something that has really never been done before, not just uh, by our organization, by simply by anybody, uh, by having our dear Talmidim from, uh, you know, from Eretz Israel, uh, both young and old, uh, that have completed the uh, Talmud Bavli in a single year, or the younger ones have completed the entire Shas. Mishnayot in a single year. These younger kids are, uh, you know, 13 and younger. 
and then also we have some Chachamim, like our own very dear Rabbi Ephraim, that has completed many other things along with the Talmud Bavli, also the Talmud Yerushalmi, and uh, many other things as well, Baruch Hashem, the Shulchan Aruch, which just completed a few days ago. So uh, when you're contributing to this uh, campaign to get, you know, either become a uh, small part of it or a bigger part of it, you're uh, also going to be a partner in this extraordinary schut, uh, this merit of uh, being part of this, all of these siyumim. Now, for those of you that want us to, uh, to pray for you during the holidays, this is the regular campaign that we have each year uh, where, uh, you know, each person that uh, donates, whether it's the uh, uh, first level or the second level, uh, they, um, you know, depending on the level of sponsorship, you're also going to get a, um, a video uh, with uh, myself and Rav Ephraim, uh, you know, blessing you at uh, anything that's particularly that uh, you want, aside from the usual of getting more parnasa and more uh, uh, good health and uh, anything else. If there's something specific, obviously let us know. I see that some of you that have been with us already in the past have already signed up. Many of you are, uh, you know, still haven't. So, Baruch Hashem, we have a lot more to go because this year, you know, the uh, the big thing about all of these campaigns is that we're utilizing these funds to not only publicize more Torah, more books, more amazing things like the organization always does, but also to feed more poor Jews in Eretz Yisrael during this holiday. So the more we get ahead of time, uh, the easier it's going to be for us to, uh, to help uh, Jewish families before the holidays. And as you all know, the holidays are, uh, you know, very uh, expensive for everybody uh, to, uh, you know, pay for food, for all, you know, for, for different things that are necessary. So the more we get ahead of time, the easier it's going to be for us to commit to, uh, to help more families. But either way, Bezat Hashem, we will do everything possible, uh, you know, regardless of what help we get, but Bezat Hashem will get more. So with that being said, I know that um, some people are uh, looking for a uh, special hand-holding uh, in these uh, types of campaigns, they want to talk about it, they want to discuss it, uh, they want to be convinced or sold uh, that, uh, that why they should do this. Uh, this is obviously not our way, uh, and uh, it's simply not something that we have the ability to do or interest to do, but I can assure you that uh, all of the people that have uh, done uh, this with us, have signed up for these campaigns, have certainly... Uh, benefited from them, and I'll give you some uh, real-life examples that I just found out about in the last 24 hours. You all ask, uh, uh, all of you ask for uh, for miracles and for stories, and Bezat Hashem, we will get some today. So, with that being said, we are uh, going to uh, continue this new chapter, chapter five of the Chazonish, where uh, which is uh, titled in Hebrew Adimyon Vasechel which is, in essence, the imagination and the intellect, or the rationale. Or you could also uh, say it as the non-logical thinking and the intellect. And Chazonish has told us this uh, about these two parts of, of, of mankind's thinking, uh, whether Jew or Gentile is irrelevant, uh, two parts of the thinking that are, in essence, going to dictate how your life, both in this world and eternity, is going to go where a person is going to have the natural inclination, as he said, to bow his head, uh, you know, to wealth, 
to power, to the wealthy people, to beauty, to loveliness, to fine buildings and royal palaces, because that's motivated by his imagination, by his non-logical thinking. Because his non-logical thinking, his imagination, is thinking about, oh, look at that guy, he has a lot of money, maybe he can help me, maybe he can save me, maybe he can donate to me, maybe uh, he's going to give me a job. And the imagination lets people think a lot of things, whereas the rationale, the, uh, the, uh, the intellect, is the adversary of the imagination, because the, uh, the, uh, uh, the rationale, the intellect of a person, wants to know the bottom line, wants to know the numbers, wants to know the proofs, wants to know whether this is the right decision or the long decision based on a track record of some kind. And this is a constant battle that a person is going to have unless they have adapted a da Torah, the, uh, the uh, opinion of the Torah, the knowledge of the Torah. Now, the imagination is very useful and necessary in order for a person to succeed, but it's also at the same time, as we spoke about last week, is one of the primary drivers to a destructive life. Where a person that lead, lets his uh, imagination rule his life could uh, literally bring himself or herself to depression without anybody else motivating them. Simply by looking at the uh, their neighbor's uh, things or looking at their uh, their brother and sister stuff or looking at anybody else's things and what whatever they have when a person focuses on what other people have they forget about the good that they have they forget to appreciate what they have they start becoming jealous oh look at her she just got married I'm not married oh look at him he just bought a new car I don't have a new car and you start thinking about what everybody else has forgetting about the fact that you too have many good things even if you don't have what these people have that you're looking at you certainly have things that are uh, very good whether you have good health you have a uh, uh, you know a good job you have a uh, good spouse you have a uh, you know good kids but unfortunately when a person allows their eyes to uh, to travel far and to go into other people's places and other people's things they could literally become depressed. You know, she's upset about her marriage. Why is she upset about her marriage? Because she saw how her friend's husband bought her a, uh, a gift. And she was so jealous of the gift that she's now upset at her husband. She didn't actually consider the fact that maybe her friend is more well off or perhaps that uh, it was uh, some type of an anniversary or a reason to buy her a gift. Or perhaps because the husband is trying to convince the wife to not divorce him because he just committed adultery. She's not considering those things. She's just thinking about the end product. She got a gift. And now she's upset at her husband that he didn't get her a gift. Forgetting that it's not our anniversary. And needless to say, her husband is loyal to her. He didn't cheat on her. So <laughs> she's much more fortunate than her friend that just got a gift. And if she would actually ask her friend, would you prefer a gift or a husband that's uh, loyal to you? Only a, a psychopath would, uh, would say that they would prefer the gift. So when a person allows their eyes to travel and look at other people's things many times, they can get to a point of depression and sadness that's unwarranted, that really has no reason whatsoever to exist. It's a self-inflicted wound. And for things like this, 
HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not going to help you because he's not the one that caused it. You're bringing it on yourself. And this is one of the things we learned from the Beta Levi, Rav Shlovechik, from a couple of hundred years ago in our series, Bitachon Be'ashem, where a person is concerned about things just simply out of their imagination. They're concerned that maybe I'm not going to have money, but you have money now. Yeah, but maybe I won't have it in the future. Oh, maybe I'm not going to find a house. Do you need a house right now? No, but I'm going to need it in six months. Okay, so worry about it in six months. No, but maybe I need to worry about it now. And what ends up happening to people is that they start developing this self-inflicted wound, this anxiety that is actually punishable with the anxiety itself happening. And that's what the Rav Slovechik says. The Bet Levi says, the measure-for-measure punishment for a person worrying about things they don't need to worry about is the actual thing they're worried about. You're worried about not having money? Hashem says, oh, so you're thinking that I fed you today, but for some reason I'm going to starve you tomorrow. You're forgetting about the fact that you didn't ask for me to feed you today, and I still gave it to you. You didn't ask for me to give you air to breathe today, but I still gave it to you. You didn't ask for anything, but I still gave it to you, but yet you don't trust me. What's the punishment? Now you're not going to have. This is not a vengeance, a punishment where Hashem is taking vengeance against His own kids. But rather it's a lesson, a lesson for us to learn that the en od milvado, there's nothing else but Him. The only thing that a person needs to worry about is their relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And when a person worries about their relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, of how they can serve Him better, and how they can do better, literally they can see miracles happening. Just like the one I, that I just witnessed recently. Literally, something unbelievable. There was a person that I mentioned to you guys uh, recently, uh, that uh, I didn't mention his name, I forgot his name at the time, but uh, now I know his name. His name is Alon Paz. And this, uh, this guy was uh, born normal, and uh, had a car accident uh, some uh, 13, 14 years ago that uh, caused him major damage. And within six months, he lost the ability to move every part of his body, except his head. That's the only thing that moves. And it's not even his whole head. It's, it's, it's his mouth. It's his nose. But the rest of his body, his arms, his legs, and even his breathing has to be assisted and you see this guy and if you see him from afar before you start hearing him talk you're thinking oh poor guy what a you know what a miskin what a horrible situation this guy just uh you know lost his life until you hear him talk once you hear him talk you hear a person that has extraordinary bitachon in hashem that actually did tshuva after the accident and is cleaving to Hashem day and night, learning Torah nonstop in his little room that he had in the hospital for 13 years straight, not leaving the room much, has a tube in his neck, can't move his hands, can't move his, uh, his legs, but he's learning Torah, he's learning Shure Torah, he's reading books. And he's developed such connection with HaKadosh Baruch Hu that he says many times, and I heard it at least a few times from him, that if you would give him an opportunity to exchange a life with someone that has everything, 
has money, has beautiful looks, has a, uh, a perfectly healthy body, he wouldn't exchange with him. He wouldn't exchange with him. He says, do not look at me like I'm a poor situation. I'm a, I am perfectly happy. Nobody's happier than me in the world. And when he was interviewed a few years ago, one of the people asked him, do you have any aspirations? He said, absolutely I have aspirations. I have many goals. I have a goal to get married. I have a goal to move out of this uh, hospital, have my house, build a home. You know, and, and, and the interview was taken back, even though he was the interview was religious. What do you mean? Get out of this hospital, this little room, and get married? Like, he's confused. Yes, he says. And I know it's going to happen. He goes, what if it doesn't happen? He says to him, what if it doesn't happen? And then Alon Paz says to him, it will happen. And not two weeks ago, not two weeks ago, he, Baruch Hashem, left the hospital, still in the bed, still can't move. Left the hospital to go get married. Now they're building him a home. He's going to live with his wife. And Be'ezrat Hashem, many more miracles. Why? Because he believes in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And nothing else. Hence the reason when people say, yeah, what if I believe in Hashem? And will he help me? Well, that depends. Do you only believe in Hashem because you have no other option? Or do you believe in Hashem regardless of what's going on? And this, Rabotai, is one of the most profound ideas that we learned from the Beta Levi, that many times people literally get to a point where they're hopeless because everything else they try. They try to make money here. They try to make money there. They try to get married here. They try to make money there, get married there. Nothing worked. Then they say, listen, Hashem, will you help me? And they're surprised that he doesn't help them sometimes. Why did you come to me last? Why didn't you come to me first? And this is Rabotai, one of the most important things that if a person utilizes their imagination in a positive way, where they're imagining all the blessings that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has already given them, how much He has transformed the world just for your sake. You have food to eat. Do you understand how much HaKadosh Baruch Hu had to do in order for you to eat? There had to be somebody that just decided one day that he's going to go into a business of farming. And then it wasn't enough for him to just do local farming. He wanted to do national farming. So he had to hire people and he had to find those people. And those people had to go to work every day. And they had to plant these different seeds and bring all these crops out. And then obviously do all of the different things they need to do in order to bring these crops and turn them into something that you can actually eat. The whole manufacturing process is extraordinary. One of the main things that you will benefit from learning the laws of Shabbat when you go into it deeply is actually by learning about all of these different things that you have to do in order to actually be a successful farmer. And the beautiful thing here is that this is a Kadosh Baruch Hu teaching you the, the, the miraculous nature that he's created through the laws now you're learning the laws but you're also learning the miraculous nature of the creation 
And all of this that had to happen in order for this plant to turn into a piece of bread. And now this bread has to be wrapped. It has to be preserved. And also it has to be shipped. And it has to be shipped to different wholesalers. And those wholesalers have to bring it to different supermarkets. And those supermarkets have to decide to build one local to you. So you can buy this piece of bread that has the kosher symbol on it. Because if it doesn't have a kosher symbol on it, you don't know what's in it. And even when it does have a kosher symbol on it, you have to make sure that it's not dairy bread because if you're going to eat a meat sandwich with dairy bread, you have a very serious problem with Hashem. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu made sure that there is a kashrut organizations that are going to make sure to analyze the manufacturing process and let you know if this bread has dairy in it or not. And then put a little symbol on it. And somebody had to invent this ink and this computer program and this processing center that is going to make these wrappers easily add the kashrut symbol and put it on that bread. But anytime it's missing, the kashrut organizations immediately send out emails to different people and notify the public that there's a mistake in the kashrut. This one is kosher, but it doesn't say the symbol. This one says a symbol, but it's not really kosher. And there are many employees behind that whole process that seems easy to you because it's just a simple email or or some type of text message or maybe even you saw it on the internet. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu worried about that for you. And then of course, if we go into the meat process, somebody had to decide that they're going to grow cows or sheep or chickens or any other type of kosher meat and not have a non-kosher meat like many others, even though it looks more profitable because you could sell a lot more. And he has to have rabbis supervise every single shechita, every slaughter. And analyze everything and make sure whether it's chalak or it's glat or it's, it's not. He has to analyze everything. And all of this has to go through a whole process. A manufacturing process. A capitalistic process. But most importantly, a process that has divine intervention at every single step monitoring every single step to make sure that what you need is available to you when you need it so after HaKadosh Baruch Hu prepared that sandwich from Aleph Atta, from A to Z for you you're worried about what you're going to eat for dinner you're worried about what you're going to eat tomorrow and needless to say you're worried about what you're going to eat in six months from now Isn't that lack of gratitude? And many times when people have no bitachon in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you see that they have many, many other defects in their relationship with the Borei Olam, with the Creator of the world. So the imagination can be utilized for good where a person can learn how to appreciate his blessings. A person can learn how to appreciate her blessings. And not have any time to waste looking at other people's blessings. And know that whatever you need, you have. And if you don't have it, that means you don't need it. But on the other hand, if a person allows their imagination to be utilized in an inappropriate way, they can get to a point where like some person that contacted me, a few times actually I've had people contact me where they tell me that they, 
their imagination has led them to forbidden places they now have attraction to the same gender they have attraction to people that are married even though they themselves are not the person they're married to and it was multiple times that i've told men that they're not allowed to go to the mikveh because of how awful how awful the place their imagination has gotten to where instead of going to a place of purity to purify yourself it becomes a place of sin and you are now forbidden from going there why because you've allowed your imagination to go into a forbidden place this is why i always tell people that have the desire to be holy don't get used to looking at yourself don't look at yourself at all literally the basic minimum especially men men have become accustomed to looking at themselves and looking at their bodies this is not abnormal it's normal but it's not good don't look at your breed don't look at your body there's no need if it was if, if you feel it it's there if something's wrong you'll feel that there's something wrong because the more you look at your body the more you become accustomed to your body the more comfortable you are with your body and then it leads to wasting seed promiscuity and all types of horrible things which also include pride and arrogance this is one of the downsides of people that spend a lot of time working out in gyms now, although working out in the gym is good it's healthy for people that have the time to do it and the ability to do it and interest to do it but if you're going to spend the entire time that you're working out looking at yourself in the mirror the gym has become a tool of arrogance for you it's no longer healthy for your neshama it may be healthy for your body but not your neshama why looking at yourself is unhealthy so the imagination could lead you to appreciate the creator but it could also lead you to destroy your relationship with the creator the same exact tool can be used for good and for bad now Chazonish continues here and he tells us how the imagination likes the future and doesn't like the present and this is part of the war between the imagination and the intellect and he says as follows it's the nature of man to love competition if there are two people one competes with the other if there are two communities two edot one community competes with the other or if earlier generations compete with later generations this too is alluring producing a clash that is pleasurable to follow now the earlier generations claim we are cleverer than you the generations are deteriorating with the flow of time the heart of the earlier generations was wide open like the entrance of a palace and the heart of the later generations is like the eye of a needle to which the later generations respond to it saying but the earlier generations were idlers they had no contact with other nations and the people in the various parts of the world did not know each other all their food was natural and they dressed in sheepskin they fought their wars with swords and spears and bows and arrows and catapults but we the the you know the more recent generations later generations we have put down railroad tracks all over the world 
We have created a telegraph, a telephone, radio. We made all of mankind into one family where all scholars of the world can confer together as if this world is one big city. We have even made towers that fly through the air and we are lighter in flight than eagles. We have also built many factories that produce various goods such as our forefathers never imagined. We have also invented weapons, world-destroying bonds that can kill thousands and tens of thousands. It's below our dignity to compete with the earlier generations that lacked all of these things. Would a giant want to compete with a dwarf? Up to here is what we're going to discuss today. The ultimate battle between us here today and the previous generation. Because the imagination that loves the future hates the past. The intellect, on the other hand, analyzes things for what they are, which we'll get into in the next section. But what is all of this battle about? Are we really better off than the previous generations? Now, of course, somebody that has learned some Torah can easily say, yes, we're better off, but do you know why? Is that even an appropriate question to ask, whether we're better off than the past or not? Should we be asking something else? So first and foremost, the Chazonish starts off by letting us know that thinking about this is very normal because it's part of the nature of man that loves competition. People love to compete. One person competes with the other. One brother competes with his other brother or his sister. Who has the better drawing? Who has better answers in the test? Who has a nicer bike? Who has a nicer car? Who has a nicer house? People compete constantly. Who could get from here to there faster? And the competition is part of mankind's mentality. In fact, it's necessary if it's utilized the right way. The Gemara says that competition between two chachamim is good because it creates greater wisdom. But competition between two regular people is unhealthy because it creates jealousy. Now, sports in general would not exist if it was not for competition. That's the whole point of them. One person wants to beat the other person. One team wants to beat the other person, the other team. And there was one time a guy that came to a Rav Shvadron. Rav Shalom Shvadron was an extraordinary Talmud Chacham. Mezakia Rabim. Literally went all over the world just to help Jewish people get closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu in his unique and extraordinary style of speaking and teaching. Rav Shvadron was an Ashkenazi Jew that loved all Jews. Whether they were Ashkenazi or Sfaradi did not make a difference. And one time a Jew came to him and told him, Rabbi, listen, I keep Shabbat, keep Kashrut, I come to the Shiul, but I have a problem that I can't come to the next Shiul because I also love soccer. 
Love soccer, kaduegel in Hebrew. And there's a game between two championship teams, and I can't miss the game. I have to be, I have to watch the game. Rav Shvadon, in his cleverness, he says to him, What's what is this soccer? Tomid is shocked. How does the rabbi not know what Kadwegel is? He says to him, you know, the old man, oh, so maybe in his time there wasn't any soccer. He says to him, well, you know, it's two teams. Each one has 11 players. And there's one ball, two nets, and each team tries to get the ball in the net of the uh, the goal of the uh, opposing team. So Rashmadon says to him, Oh, so why are they fighting? Why, why, why all this fighting and this arguing? Just be nice to each other and take turns. Tell the blue team to go. They can kick for a little while, put the goal in the net as much as they want. And then once they finish, after a few minutes, give it to the red team and they let them kick the ball in as many times as they want. Be nice to each other. Why are they arguing for isn't that a better solution? <laughs> and the man laughs. He goes, no, no, Rabbi, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You, you can't just give the, the team the ball. He goes, why not? Why, they're not nice people? He goes, no, no, they're great. It's just that that's the, there's, a, there's a guy, one of the 11 people, he's called the goalie. And he is there, and he is going to try to stop the ball. So Hasbro says, that, okay, easy solution. Tell him, don't come to play if you're going to do that. You're ruining the game. We're trying to be friends. Get out of the way. You're ruining the game for us. He goes, no, Rabbi, that's not the point. No, no, no. It's not that he's ruining the game. That's the whole objective of the game. He's trying to stop the ball, and so is the rest of his team. Because if they just let each other score all the time, there's no point. The whole challenge of the game is who can score more while stopping the other guy. Says to him, Rav Shvadron, says to him, Rav Shvadron, your ears should hear what your mouth is saying. If you're saying that the whole objective of the game is to score when there is a defender, when there's someone going in, trying to stop you, that's the whole point of the game, or else there's no point. There's, why would you be the champion? Why would you be the winner if there's no one getting in the way? The same thing applies to your Torah. It's easy for you, like you said, to keep Shabbat. It's easy for you to eat kosher. It's easy for you to put on a tzitzit. It's easy for you. But it's not easy for you to come to the Shiur Torah. It's not easy for you to honor your parents. It's not easy for you to give tzedakah. It's not easy for you to do a lot of other things. But that's the point. That's why Kadosh Baruch Hu does it. People ask me all the time, why did Hashem create us with such a desire to go and make sins? That's the point, Habibi. That's the point. If you didn't have a desire to do the wrong thing, why should He reward you? Why should He reward you? If you're like a robot and you're doing everything perfectly, why should he put you in Gan Eden? The whole point is that you have a desire to do the wrong thing, but you choose to do the right thing. 
because that's the will of Hashem. And that's what the Gemara in Masechet Menachot says in the name of Rabban Gamliel. He says, a Jew should never say that pig is disgusting and it's, and it's uh, I would never eat it because it doesn't taste good and shatnez is not fun to wear. No, don't say that because you don't know that unless you eat it. But either way, it could be that pig is delicious. It could be that wearing shatnez is fun. It's great. It looks good. But what can I do that my father in heaven, HaKadosh Baruch Hu Yishtabach Shimolad, says that I'm not allowed? That's why I don't eat pig. That's why I don't wear shatnez. It's not because pig is not delicious. It's not because not wearing shatnez is not good. No, it's because my father in heaven says I'm not allowed. That's why I don't do it. We don't fulfill the mitzvot because they're fun. And we don't not sin because it's not fun. No, no, no. It's because HaKadosh Baruch Hu said so. And unlike some of the heretics that make it seem as if HaKadosh Baruch Hu needs you and needs your mitzvot, or like I recently, unfortunately, heard more kfirah from this apikos, uh, Manus Friedman from nearly 10 years ago that apparently we missed, where he says that God is upset at himself. He's not going to punish anyone for making any sins because it's his fault. He's upset at himself. He's angry at itself. Literally, the stupidity that comes out of his mouth just gets worse and worse each time. Each time you hear it. But unfortunately, there are many, many victims. Many victims in the Jewish world and the non-Jewish world to this heretical thought process. Why? Because they allow their imagination to control their life. They're thinking, listen, I want good so why should I punish anybody I should just forgive everyone and therefore God will forgive everyone and the fact that I sinned it's his fault so he knows it's his fault so that's why he gave me the evil inclination I didn't give it to myself so therefore because I sinned it's his fault he's gonna punish himself he's mad at himself literally the stupidity that comes out of these people I'm not sure if they need to be in Gehenna or in like a new section where it's like mental cases. But this is what's coming out. This is the type of Tum'ah that is being fed to the public and unfortunately many people are eating it. Why are they eating it? Because they themselves are living in a world of imagination. Exodus in the early generations it said Shuva Meira is realistic for most people. Shuva Miyava is only for Tzadikim. Not anymore. Today, tshuva miyira doesn't exist. The only tshuva there is, is tshuva mi'ava. Which means, the tshuva is, I just want him back. That's not yira. Because we know, you have to know, the Ebishter is not angry at you. He's angry at himself. It means he blames himself for creating this mess, for creating the Yetzirah, for creating the Avedas. That means I doesn't believe in himself. There's no question that the Ebishter blames himself. And that's why he's asking us to come and be forgiven. We're not even asking him to forgive us. He's asking us to come Yom Kippur so that he can forgive us. Why? Because it's his fault. So it says in the davening, a hundred different times in the Yom Kippur davening, we refer to the Ebishter as Neisei Oven. You give me the Sarachim. Neisei Oven, which means he tolerates our sins. That's the simple meaning. The deeper meaning is he carries the sin. It's his fault. So why does he forgive us? Because he's nice and open. 
Because he takes the blame. How could he not? So now the Chazonish is telling us it's important for you to know that competition is part of your mentality. It's a necessary part of your mentality, but you need to know how to use it. But sometimes people don't know how to use it, like the examples we said and other examples, where he's mentioning that there could be two adult, two Jewish communities that are competing with each other. Why would two Jewish communities compete with each other? This is unfortunately part of the world that we see on a daily basis, where you see the Sfaradim competing with Ashkenazim. One will tell the other, oh, we have better traditions, we have better food, we have better prayer, we have better this, we have better that. The other one says, yeah, we're more organized, we're this, we're more uh, whatever. Or you even have it within each other. Sephardis, there's a different type of Sephardi Jews, just like there's a different type of Ashkenazi Jews. There's Sephardi Jews from Tripoli, from Libya, like where my ancestors are from. There's certainly a huge community from Morocco, from Syria, from Egypt, from Lebanon, from Yemen. And many times you see ignorant people don't even know how to keep Shabbat, and many times not even keep Shabbat. But they love the traditions. They love the traditions. You say, oh, I'm a Jew from uh, Tripoli. We have the best food. And of course, the Moroccan says, ah, no, come on. Yeah, you're the best food until you get to a Moroccan house. What are you talking about? No, we have better food. Our food is redder, more spicier, more this, more that. No, come on, we have the best. We have Zbana Vekukla. We have uh, uh, Hamin. We have this. And each one is arguing like as if they're fighting over the Ten Commandments. They're fighting over the Ten Commandments. Like if you say one thing about the other one's food that's not as good, oh, the, the, the generation has gotten to a point where literally their jewelry has become foods. Who has better hummus? Who has better uh, 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 different types of uh, uh, dishes that they have on Shabbat? And it's as if they think that Judaism is a restaurant of some kind. And unfortunately, there's nothing further from the truth. There's nothing further from the truth. Next, we also see that the earlier generations compete with the later generations. Earlier generations are competing with the later generations. And he says this too is alluring and produces a clash that is pleasurable to follow. Why is it pleasurable to follow? On one end, it's pleasurable where it's foolish, but it's pleasurable for people that are on different sides where the ones that are of the older generation, they're very confident in their ways and their traditions. So much so that they frown upon the current generation. They always mention, oh, we are cleverer than you. The generations deteriorate. 
as it's already known, each generation is worse than the next. We're much smarter than what you guys are. The hearts of the early generations were full of tzaddikim. Our hearts were connected to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, like an entrance to a palace. You see, poor Jews, despite the poverty and desperation and everything else, they didn't abandon their faith. This generation, if they don't get their paycheck on time, they become atheists. If they don't get married exactly on the day and the time that they want, they uh, already be go, go to a different religion. Look what happened over here. You didn't see our uh, us do that. It's not 100% true because unfortunately we had the Spanish Inquisition. We had damages in the past, but needless to say, we have obviously a lot more secular Jews today than any other time in history. But that doesn't mean that it's a new thing. People for some reason think that the Jewish people only started becoming uh, Michalei Shabbat now. It's not true. If you read a little history, Jewish history, you see that it's not a new thing. And it's not even new over the last couple of hundred years. Anyone that pays attention to the stories of what happened before the Bet HaMikdash, whether it's the influence of the Romans or the Greeks, what did you think that those Jews that became Mityavnim, became Greeks, you think they continued keeping Shabbat? You think they continued giving Maaser to the Torah? You think they continued uh, eating kosher? No. They intermarried. They became LGBTQ. They did all types of other ugly things. And the same thing happened throughout all of the generations. The reason why we exist today, obviously, is because of the religious Jews that continued cleaving to Hashem. But secular people or people that have abandoned their faith has always been part of the uh, part of the calculation. So, the people of the past generation mocked the current generation by saying the hearts of our our generation were like a entrance to a palace, whereas yours, this generation. It's like the opening of a needle. Night, tiny. There's a few of you that are decent. Lamdanim, learn a little bit, but very few. But then he says, the later generations, meaning the more recent, they find this absurd. What are you talking about? Earlier generations were idlers. They didn't do anything. They had no contact with the other nations and the people in the various parts of the world they didn't even know about each other why because this guy lived in morocco he didn't even know about anybody who lived in tripoli in fact there is a truth to that where many times especially this was a uh, a thing that came to light after modern-day Israel enabled many Jews from all over the world to come to the land of Israel, and many Ashkenazim didn't even realize that Sephardic Jewry was still in existence. And even more so, when they saw extraordinary Chachamim, like Rabbi Vadya, they didn't know what to do with it because they couldn't believe that the Sephardi world has such great Chachamim. 
and it took them time to adapt and some unfortunately still haven't adapted until this day and are still unfortunately very uh racist against their own brothers why because he came from poland he came from russia he came from somewhere in europe and the other one the other chacham came from somewhere in egypt or tripoli or somewhere else in sephardic jewry and unfortunately there's a lot of animosity still to this day in Eretz Yisrael between the Ashkenazim and the Sfaradim it's improved in the last 50 years it used to be much much worse but nonetheless it still exists it still exists I remember one of the most horrifying stories that I ever heard was that when uh, Rabbi Ephraim was still young younger and he was going to yeshiva and now he had to go to yeshiva gdola and he was already known as an extraordinary talmid chacham and uh he wanted to go to the best yeshiva and the best yeshiva at the time was an ashkenazi yeshiva the test that he took perfected it it was the best of the best top of the class but then the guy that was running the administration told him uh i'm sorry we can't accept you but but i got the best grade out of everybody yeah but uh, we have to maintain a ratio and unless you can bring two ashkenazi jews friends that you have to attend we can't allow you to come in now of course young kid this was devastating you're not gonna let me in not because of my grades not because of anything else other than the fact that I'm Sfaradi now of course this was all from Shemaim he ended up going to a different yeshiva which over there he excelled and grew in ways that certainly he wouldn't have been able to do elsewhere but this is not 500 years ago this is 20 years ago or less and this still happens to this day and unfortunately many times what ends up happening is that young talented Sephardi Bachurim ended up end up becoming more Ashkenazi why because they want to go into the best yeshiva and the best yeshiva is sometimes an Ashkenazi yeshiva that's uh won't let them if they're too Sephardi and this is even worse for girls they won't let her in because she comes from a Sephardi house because they have to maintain the Ashkenazi quota and if they do let her in as I know firsthand experience from the Rabbanit Rabbi Ephraim's uh, uh, wife as well as from different students that we have if they finally let her in if she's Sephardi she also gets a certain amount of abuse for being Sephardi and you say wait a minute but shouldn't somebody complain to who who are you going to complain to? If you complain, they throw you out. Okay, you don't like it? Go somewhere else. And unfortunately, this happens. And it's not all yeshivot, and it's not all seminaries, but it does exist. Just like horrible things like pedophilia exist, and rape exists, and theft exists, and, and all types of crimes exist, this exists too. And don't worry, eventually HaKadosh Baruch will pay each one of these people that does these types of things but at the very 
least a person needs to understand that all of this all of this stems from a bad place a misuse of competition a misuse of competition instead of using competition to become better to do better to help better you use competition to look down at everybody as you're lifting yourself up while stepping on them and one of the things that the Mishnah says someone that takes pleasure in his brother's downfall loses his olam you're not allowed to make fun of your brother because he fell there's no permission oh look he got sick because he's a sinner no 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 you don't say stuff like that you can say these types of sins lead to sickness because that's what the Gemara says these types of actions lead to death because that's what the Gemara says but after it already happened go and try to help this person if you can help them do tshuva help them get closer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, give them some chizuk don't take pleasure that they fell down and now they have become a uh, uh, the nothing that they didn't realize they were always remember the goal of rebuke is to help people not to look down at them when we say that so-and-so is a rasha that's because his actions are that if he does tshuva if she does tshuva they're now a tzaddik you have to love them no less than you love the biggest tzaddik in the world and the only reason why you're have the permission to call them a rasha is because the Torah calls them a rasha but you don't hate them personally you hate their deeds if they change their deeds you have to love them you have to help them you have to support them and in fact even before they change the deeds if you can actually help them do tshuva that's what we do every single day but many times people think it's a competition between the ones that did tshuva versus the ones that didn't the ones that know versus the ones that don't no no there's no competition here if you're competing thinking that you're better than people that are not doing as well you haven't done tshuva yourself you have to watch and read the Igeret uh, Ramban where he specifically talks about this issue of arrogance that comes from people that are going in the right path thinking that everybody else is a loser because they're doing better not because they're not doing well and it's important for a person to know that competition is necessary for you to advance in the world but the biggest competition should be within yourself compete against yourself your former self always better yourself be better don't look at who's running next to you look at yourself what did you do yesterday can you do better today how much did you learn yesterday can you learn more today how much did you learn last year can you learn more this year have you sanctified yourself since last Rosh Hashanah or are you the same person that you were last year if you're the if you arrived at Rosh Hashanah last year the same way that you are right now you have failed miserably at growth you don't have time to compete with anybody else you're not even competing with yourself the right way a person has to know that they have to constantly elevate themselves and compete with themselves 
don't make yourself feel better because you're surrounded by people that are not keeping anything at all that's not going to help you in the bedin of shemaim because he doesn't know how to read that doesn't make you a better reader because he doesn't give tzedakah at all that doesn't mean that your hundred dollars that you gave tzedakah is generous it all is depending on where you are and how much you can do and that's what a kadosh Baruch Hu is going to analyze but the younger generation is too enamored with the future the innovations it's going to say something like the earlier generations were idlers in comparison to us they had no contact with anybody else in the world they didn't know that the Sephardis existed the Ashkenazi existed the different nations existed as if Columbus discovered the world we didn't even know that America was there even though there was people there already just because you didn't know doesn't mean that no one else knew and of course this type of past versus present type of competition is full of imagination the past is going to tell you that we had better lives there was less divorce we had more tzaddikim more chachamim life was difficult but we endured the president's going to tell you life has become easier because of our intellect all you need is two fingers you can run the world two fingers yeah Ephraim says one finger to press the button for whatever you want on some computer you can make transactions with the bank you could buy things sell things one finger the other finger is I don't know maybe pick your nose your ear that's what the other finger is for because you're still human as funny as it is that's in essence what people think they don't need much they can do everything with just a single finger and two just to have fun the old generation from their perspective is they everything took a long time if they had to make a transaction the Gemara says how does somebody make a transaction he has a donkey and he wants to sell his donkey because he wants to buy a cow so it's a barter system so he has to bring his donkey to the guy that has the cow or vice versa he goes he brings his donkey gets there eventually after walking a few miles now is a transaction he pulls the cow the other guy pulls the donkey they made a transaction now the Gemara says what happened if while he was going there the cow gave birth the little calf does it belong to the guy that just made a transaction because he already told them listen I want to buy it I'm going to bring the donkey on Tuesday put it on the side for me or listen until you pull the donkey transaction is not finished simple answer is the latter meaning so long as the guy that wants to buy the cow did not pull it 
did not do what's called Meshicha and uh, uh, take it uh, in his hand, the cow is not his. Even if he says, reserve it for me, I want it. Until he actually takes it, there's no transaction. Meaning that whatever that cow, uh, uh, you know, whatever birth she has, belongs to the guy that owned her until that time. But today, the guy doesn't need to do all that. If he wants to, not just buy a cow, he wants to buy an entire farm full of cows. He wants to buy a thousand cows. All he needs to do, he can go on the internet, he can call a broker. Listen, there is a farm over there. I heard about it. The guy is posting it on some website that he has a thousand cows for $5,000 a cow. Tell him I want to buy all of them. I'll pay him $4,500. Here's the wire instructions. Here's the money. Put it in escrow until the guy agrees. He signs here. Finished. Literally, he can do the whole transaction in five minutes. Unless he's going to involve lawyers, which are going to extend it by at least three months because they have to get paid. Because if it wasn't for the lawyers, it would be finished in five minutes. But there's no money to be made if you only do it in five minutes like a normal person. So the lawyers have to pretend like you have to protect yourself from doing something that takes five minutes. Needless to say, this whole transaction, he doesn't have to go anywhere. He doesn't even have to leave his house. Press a couple of buttons. Transaction's finished. So the new generation says, look at that. You're not telling, isn't that much better? The other guy in the old generation had to walk for three days just to bring his donkey to the guy that has the cow. And then finally he takes the cow and he has to walk three days back. Today, all you got to do is press a button. Press one button, I bought a thousand cows. Surely it shows that we're better. That's what the person will think. The old generation, they may not even have known anybody that had that many cows unless he was local to them. Says their food was natural. They were dressed in sheepskin in the old generation. Today, we have all types of food. You go to a grocery store for the first time, you get confused. 20 different cereals, 15 different types of salts, 100 different sugars. Why do I need to so many different types of sugars? Why so many cereals? That's because everybody's in this business and somebody, everybody, Hashem gives money to everybody. Enough to make all these different products. I have a student that came, immigrated from a different country to the States and apparently from where he came from, you know, they had like the old style, very, very simple, small stores, maybe one or two different types of cereals, one type of salt, one type of sugar, you know, one or two types of everything, small little t- mom and pop shop. He came to the States, walked into a Walmart, almost had a heart attack. Whoa, it's 85 different things of everything. If you want to get a plate, you have to go on an entire aisle, not to find a plate, just to simply go through the different variations of plates. There's a plastic plate. And as metal plate, and as glass plate, and as blue, and as green, and as purple, and as this, and as all types of plates. And then after you get the plates, okay, so let me get some uh, paper towels. You go to the next aisle, 
and there's a hundred different types of paper towels there's ones that are 10 feet and 12 feet and 30 feet and the ones that are double threaded and triple and in single and this one that price and they single single packages and in multi packages and family packages and gain packages and all types of packages he doesn't know what to do he's like wait do i need to get a shopping cart or a tractor trailer he just came there to get a plate maybe a piece of cheese he left with 500 dollars worth of stuff why so much variation i can't miss out So of course the mind of today thinks surely that variation is better at least that's what they would think in the old generation they wore sheepskin today you want to get clothes there's literally no end to the clothes all types of strange idol worshiping names different names of, of Gucci and Armani and Zara and Dara and whoever and DKNY and some other flamer over there LGBTQ all types of names each one sold at top prices for absolutely no reason whatsoever before they go into the discount store and sold for five dollars people pay for it in fact the more expensive the more people want it why competition competition in fact that's one of the things that is the product of competition is a lack of rationale a lack of rationale Shlomo Amelech says in Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, chapter 4, verse number 4. Ani et kol amal vet kol amase, ki kinat ish gamze hevel ruach. Shlomo Amelech says, And I saw that all labor and all skillful enterprise spring from man's rivalry with his neighbor competition this too is futility and vexation of the spirit here shlomo amelech who was extraordinarily wealthy so wealthy that he paid hiram melech tzu for the wood that he gave him to help him build the bet he paid him by giving him a city of gold not a pillar of gold not a a a, a tractor f- carrying gold not a truck full of gold no 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 a city of gold everything was gold for what for pieces of wood that's how much gold Shlomo Melech had and he says he saw all the labor all the skillful enterprise everything that people do they keep innovating they keep building they keep doing he built a house with a villa one story five thousand square feet the next door neighbor has to outdo him what does he do two stories five thousand square feet for each floor before you know it another person moves into the house destroys the house that he has there and builds a palace three stories twenty thousand square feet 
and as a house competition. A house competition, who has the bigger house? The more innovative house, where they have now, already for some years, where they have a what's called a smart house, where the smart house is, has all this technology built into it, where you walk into the house, the house already knows what temperature you want the air conditioner, it already knows at what time you make coffee, and all types of other things, you know, turn, turn off the lights, turn on the lights, make sure that uh, the, uh, everything works in accordance to the owner that programmed it. They even have different uh, AI uh, built into it that's learning people's behavior over a period or a month or two in order to make the house and so, you know, smarter. Now, although this convenience is interesting, it's important for a person to know the halachic laws that are involved in actually having a smart house. Because there are certain problems with it and there are certainly certain benefits from it that you have to know. You can't just build a smart house without knowing to what. But needless to say, the new generation thinks, oh, it's, well, if it's doing it by itself, then surely it's allowed. No, not necessarily. And Shlomo HaMedach says, where, where does all this desire to make smart houses and smart cars and different phones and new models every year with phones and bigger houses and all ta- where does all innovation come from? He says all of this comes from man's rivalry with his neighbor. All of it comes from competition. And he concludes, says the Ibn Latif, that even though most people are basically sincere people, decent people, they're impelled by their competition, their greed, and their jealousy. And therefore, these factors themselves turn them into something that they're not supposed to be. The Ibn Ezra says that the spirit of man's rivalry with his neighbor is simply that everyone has this mentality that they have to outdo their neighbor. They have to have a better house, better clothing, better children, better food, better wisdom, better reputation. Constantly competing. Instead of competing with themselves, competing with what Torah requires you to do, they're competing with people. And lastly, the Shah Bat Rabim says that because the drive of competition of such is not healthy and because people will end up outdoing themselves often to their detriment only in order to satisfy their competitiveness and find themselves enslaved to their own passions so here already 3,000 years ago Shlomo HaMelech already wrote about society today as there is nothing new under the sun. He's building a bigger house, not because he needs a bigger house. In fact, as he got richer, he needed a smaller house because his kids got older and they left the house. So when he didn't have much money, 
and all the kids were living home because they were still young. He needed a bigger house, but he couldn't afford it. Now that he's made some more money, but it took time. His kids already got married, left the house. All 10 of them are out of the house, but now he can afford a house that could afford 100, that could you know, fit 100 kids. But what is he going to do with it? What is he going to do with this house? And many times people end up buying more, doing more, consuming more, not because of their needs, but rather because of their desire to do better than someone else. Even if that someone else is an imaginary friend. They get a bigger house, not because they need a bigger house, but because they want to have the best house. They get a newer car, not because their old car doesn't work, but because they want to make sure that they still look fresh next to the competition, whoever that may be. And if somebody got the same car, oh, that's like, uh, you might as well kill them. They get depressed. I know somebody. Overall, good person. But when it comes to cars, literally a sick person. Sick, sick. Like if, if there was an institution that helps people that have an obsession with cars, I would send them there. I'd even pay for it. He gets a car. Whatever model, I don't know, whatever truck or SUV or whatever car he has, in some color that he likes. And he's as happy as can be. Even though he already had a car. And it wasn't really old. Maybe a year old. He wanted a new car. Fine, no problem. Gets a new car. He gets the newest shade of white. Not really sure what that means, but the newest shade of white. Somehow white changed over the years. Newest shade of white. This is unique. This is the newest model. This is this. This is that. Mabruk. Mazaltov. Not a month passes by. What happened to your newest shade of white uh, car? Oh, nah. It's a piece of garbage. Why? Didn't drive? No, no. I drove. I drove. But the computer system in the car didn't work? No, no, no. It worked. It worked. It worked. It's a piece of garbage, though. What, it was slow? No, it was fast, it was fast. So what makes it a piece of garbage? What's wrong with it? Ah, listen. The guy sold it to me. He said, this is a unique, limited edition. That's why it's so expensive. No, so what happened? He lied to me. What, what? Already a month later, I saw some guy in the highway has the same thing. I saw somebody in the highway has the same thing as this guy, as I have. Ah, it's a piece of garbage. Wait, because you found that somebody else has the same car, it becomes a garbage? That's your garbage? Give me all your garbage. Okay, I like garbage like that. I'm sick people. No, I turned it in. I I, I got an exchange for something else. Where'd you get something else? No, I got the newest edition, the newest, newest, newest edition. It's a different, newest shade of white. Okay, where is it? This car you have right now is a blue car that's a simple car for 200 bucks a month. No, no, no. I have this one for the next six months until the newest, newest, newest one comes in six months from now. Wait, so you're telling me that because you saw somebody have the same car on the highway, 
you're willing to drive a car that's literally not even the ma'asel of the car that you have for six months just to get a car in hopes that nobody else has this other car. And you know how many people like this there is? Do you know how many people like this there is? There's this thing that the people of the West admire, and even actually, uh, needless to say, people in Israel admire about Saudi Arabia and Dubai. What do they admire about them? That over there, their police officers, the police car is a Lamborghini. You know, a $200,000 car, quarter million dollar car. So when a policeman in America or in Israel, you know, bumps his car, ruins his car, like, ah, no, come on, what do you have now? You ruined this car, big deal. You know what they have in Dubai? You know what they have in Saudi Arabia? Police over there is driving Lamborghinis. Not like you guys. What are you driving? A Ford? Ah, It's nothing. It's garbage. Why is it garbage? Because it's not a quarter million dollar car. It's garbage. Does it go from point A to point B? That's competition. Unhealthy competition. Unhealthy competition that has gone to such an extreme that in a place like Saudi Arabia where literally there are people that don't have food to eat. But yet, the government, the rulership over there, wants to image, the image to look good, so they give $250,000 cars to their police officers. If they simply took all those cars and gave them normal cars and used that extra money to feed people, things would be much better. But, of course, competition would not allow that. And many times, the wealthier somebody is, the more insane they become when it comes to this competition. They want to buy a plane, but as long as no one else has it. I saw a video. Young man, apparently comes from a family of very wealthy people. Obnoxious, disgusting behavior. I highly doubt this kid even knows what Musar is. But when he was buying this plane in this one-minute video, the main thing that he asked the plane broker is to make sure that not many people have this plane. He says, listen, I have to entertain my clients, and I want to make sure that I don't run into anybody else that has this plane. And I'm thinking to myself, this is literally insanity. When you're flying in the air, there's no traffic where you see somebody else's plane say, hey, what, you have a G700? Ah, my plane is garbage. I'm going to crash it on purpose. No, you just fly to wherever you're going. In fact, when you're down there, no one pays attention to it. And whoever it does is usually the pilot. But the sickness has gone to such a level that he only wants a plane that no one else is going to have. They only want a watch that no one else has. They only want a car that no one else has. Because that makes them feel special. This Rabotai is exactly what Shlomo HaMelech is talking about. The imagination of a person taking over the natural inclination 
of competition and magnifying it in a horrible fashion to the point where the person becomes a slave to their passions, to their desires, and even to other people's desires, meaning that they will literally be willing to buy a house or a plane or a car that they don't even want just for the sake of beating somebody else in a competition. You ask him, listen, why don't you help a bunch of poor people? No, 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 I don't have time for that. But if it's to buy a million dollar watch or a million dollar house or whatever it is, just to tell people that you have this thing that you don't even want, no problem. This is why the Chafetz Chaim says that the people that will get punished the most when Mashiach comes will be the rich people that did not use their money in order to publicize Torah and instead used it for all types of horrible things or were stingy. So here we see a couple of things of how competition that could help you be more productive, be more righteous, be a better servant of Hashem, yet the same competition utilized for a horrible reason and most likely in most people that's what it's used for. Meaning in more cases than not, the competition is used this way. Why? Because more people are using their imagination to control their life than they are using their intellect. And the recent generations will think of their innovations as better. They're looking at the past as if ancient history, wearing sheepskin. They fought their wars with swords and spears, bows and arrows, and catapults. But we, in this generation, we've railroad tracks all over the world. Have telegraphs, telephones, radio, needless to say, by now, over the last 50 years since this was written, computers, iPhones, server systems, cloud, and so on. Amazon, eBay, if it's still in business, you know, all these different AI. These are innovations. Surely that makes us better, they think. We have made all of mankind into one family. How? Well, all the scholars of the world can confer together as if the world is one big city. You have today computers and phones that enable a person to communicate with whoever he wants to communicate with without having to travel on a boat for three months or even on a train for several months, or even on a plane. Simply press a button, and the meeting began. I remember one of the least favorite things that I had in the world of business was meetings, and I would avoid them at all costs. And many times, clients would want to meet, and I simply would not want to meet them. And they'd ask me, why don't you, uh, you know, we, we have an account, we're making money together. I said, if there's anything wrong and I have some type of obligation to meet, no problem. But if there's no reason to meet, just to have food and everything, I'm busy. I don't like, you know, there's no point of meeting. 
But sometimes they would show up in town and tell me, listen, let's go. And I would try to keep it as short as possible. Why? Because these meetings would take up the whole day. And I know that this was the opposite of what people usually do. People usually want meetings. They want to go to golf courts together. They want to meet and eat and greet and all that stuff. I, I like to be productive. I don't find these meetings to be productive. And nothing has changed over the last 20 years. People like to meet. People like to meet. And Baruch Hashem, more or less, there was never really a reason for me to meet with anybody. But sometimes I would if either uh, there was no other way where something had to happen through a meeting or simply because I actually wanted to meet for whatever reason or another. But generally speaking, this was very rare. I had one client. I must have been with him at least two, three hundred million dollars worth of business. Never met the guy. Don't even know what he looks like. Don't know what he looks like. Never met him. We talked on the phone a bunch of times. But meeting in person? Never. Why? There was never a need. He was busy. I was busy. You need something. Pick up the phone. Today, many people want to meet me. I try to tell them, listen, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't do meetings. If I have an event, usually I designate that night for the public and I wait you know, until people want to talk to me about something. And usually this takes a lot of energy and a lot of time. But since I'm already out, I do it. Many times people show up and, oh, listen, I'm in town. I just came to Florida. I want to meet with you. I'm sorry, I can't meet. Oh, well, can we meet tomorrow? No, I'm sorry, tomorrow not either. When can you meet? Never. Why? There's no need. There's no need. If there's something, just send me a message. It's no offense to you. It's just that there's so many other things I can do with that time that it just it doesn't make sense because it's never five minutes. Even though you say, people always tell, oh, no, no, five minutes, five minutes of coming and that's it. It's never five minutes. Five minutes, add a zero, two zeros to it. Literally, it could turn into hours of meetings. Sometimes I would have to tell people, listen, I have to go, you have to leave. I have to go, I have stuff to do, I have appointments, I have, you know, th- oh, but I thought you don't do meetings. I don't, it's on the phone or it's on the computer. Why? Because again, you want to meet. Now you're a nice person. I like you. I want to I talk to you. I have no problem talking to you. But the meeting is a problem. Why? Because, okay, to get to the meeting... 25 to 30 minutes to get back from the meeting 25 to 30 minutes that's already an hour you sit down you want to eat add another hour that's two hours of time who has that kind of time who has two hours just to burn you know how much i can do in two hours this sure it's two hours you know how much it's going to help people this two hours how many people will transform their lives in this two hours are you telling me that the meeting is worth 10, 20, 30,000 people listening to Torah? That's what it's worth, this two hours? Who can tell me that that's worth two hours? Who? And you could do that. You can say, yeah, but you don't do shurim all the time. You do other things. Exactly. They're more or less equivalent. Whether it's a book, or it's another project, or it's another film, or it's dealing with employees, or it's a million and a half different things. And that's the thing. But many times people don't value their time very much. So they just go with the flow. They go with the flow. Oh yeah, I have a meeting today. When? I don't know, it's around 3 o'clock. Okay, what, what do you do before and after? I know, it's tough. You know what they do? Nothing. Nothing. They do nothing. The whole day is, surround, is, is revolved around that meeting. They might as well just say it's a 24-hour meeting. 
Because before the meeting, they're preparing for the meeting. What they're going to wear, what they're going to eat. Maybe an exchange pair of clothes just in case they, some sauce falls on their, on their shirt. What they're going to say, what they're going to think, how they're going to get there, which highway they're going to take, which this, which that. Finally they meet, the guy's running late. The waiter dropped the plate. This, that, all these different things happen. And then after the meeting, they're, they're stressed out. What did he say? What did she say? What are they going to do? Are they going to do it? Where are they going to do it? How? Who? What? When? Five hours of wasted energy on their mind thinking about what happened in this meeting. Why? You want to do it? Good. You don't want to do it? Move on. We could have solved this whole problem in a 5, 10, 20, half hour phone call. Why do you need all day? Socialize? Listen, you need socializing? By all means, go socialize. But if I have time for socializing, I have a few cute little kids in my house that always want to socialize with me. I have my wife that wants to socialize with me. But that's again a preference. Some people love this stuff. They love networking. They want to go into the insurance business or into the investments business or into consulting business. All types of businesses where literally the entire business is one meeting after another. They hire somebody that their job is to make phone calls to different types of prospects just to create meetings. And the better the assistant, the more meetings they plan per day. On Monday, you have an appointment from 9 to 10, 11 to 12, 12 to 2 to 1, 1 to 2. You have 87 meetings from here to there. Okay, fine. What about Tuesday? Tuesday, I haven't worked on yet, but you should have about 75 meetings. And every day, they have a certain amount of meetings. And that's their job. And again, perfectly fine if that's what you want in your life. But again, the people that live through this imagination, they're not necessarily going to do all of these meetings and all of these different things for the same reason as people of intellect sometimes they'll actually go to a meeting just for the sake of saying they went to a meeting meaning they'll go to a meeting with their friends where there's really nothing exchanged nothing happening there's no business other than eating and paying the waiter Nothing has actually changed. But they call it a meeting. They call it a meeting. Oh, what did you do today? Oh, I had a meeting. With who? Hey, some of my, call my colleagues. My colleagues. Who are your colleagues? You know, the guy that sits down the hall, the other guy that's in that hall. <laughs> and this is, Rabotai, how a lot of people waste corporate money, waste their lives, waste their potential. But today, back to our issue at hand, there has never been a time where it's easier to meet with whoever you want without actually meeting them face-to-face. And even if you want to meet them face-to-face, it's relatively easy. Easier than it was in the past. But today, you could just simply make a phone call and even see the person. So the current generation will tell you, look, this is a major advantage that is a testament to our advanced society today versus the past. It's as if the world is one big city and we have made towers that fly through the air. Obviously, it's referring to planes, big planes, jumbo jets. You could fit 700 people, more, who are lighter than eagles. Why are are these planes lighter than eagles? Because an eagle gets tired at some point. He has to land, some mountain, 
You can't just fly from coast to coast. But the plane, you can fly for 20 hours straight. Some of these planes could literally fly for 20 hours straight halfway across the world. Direct flight. Doesn't get tired. Just make sure it has enough fuel. So this, the current generation says, surely this is something you didn't have the capability of doing. We've also built many factories that produce various goods such as our forefathers never imagined. In the old days, you wanted some cheese, you had to go to the farm outside, get to your cow, milk the cow, get some of that milk, and go through the process of making some of it cheese. You wanted some butter, same process, same, same cow, just different process. You wanted some bread, go make some plant, wait to the season, and then get your stuff, make the bread. Today, we have factories. Factories, meaning you build a factory, follow a simple system that many give credit to Henry Ford for creating this whole line system. And you have the system, one after another, one piece after another. Do, 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 do. And instead of having one piece of cheese, you have 5,000 slices a minute. You want to have, instead of one bar of butter, you have 10,000 bars of butter. Instead of having one shoe, 10,000 shoes. These factories. These factories can do things that our forefathers never imagined them. At least that's what the current generation thinks. We've invented weapons, world-destroying bombs that can kill thousands and tens of thousands. The atomic bomb was one of the greatest inventions and worst inventions all at the same time. Before the atomic bomb, war more or less didn't necessarily scare the whole world because in order to conquer the whole world was a process. Even people that conquered bar, you know, big uh, parts of the world, whether it was Nebuchadnezzar or it was a, uh, um, uh, Napoleon or Alexander the Great, some of the big dictators of the past, it was a process. It was a process. But today, if any psychopath decides that he wants to go on a world-conquering mission, if he cares less about survival of the world or even himself, all it takes is a few buttons. Why? Because of these bombs that were created. Now, of course, Hashem runs the world. But the point is, is that these world-destroying bombs were created over the last hundred years. But really, the two main scientists, one of them being Oppenheimer, who was really, a, on one end, a genius, on another end, was people disliked him and thought that he was good for nothing. 
But he didn't just go and innovate and eventually come up with the whole atomic bomb. He was also competing against somebody that learned in the same places as him, at the same time as him, that was doing the same exact thing for Nazi Germany. Meaning on two different parts of the world, enemies, enemy nations are trying to develop this world-destroying bomb at the same time by two people that studied side by side with each other or even colleagues at some point. So now, the bombs that were created obviously destroyed a lot and they've innovated them even further since then where if there really does become a, 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 a atomic war, it certainly would be the end. This is one of the things that people are always scared of. But at the same token, this atomic bomb is one of the things that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has utilized in order to keep the enemies of Israel at bay and not attack them at full force whenever they feel like it, whenever their terrorist nature decides to. Because Israel, the country, has several atomic bombs and the enemies know that if they go full force like they tried to do in the past, Israel is not going to hold back from actually using one of these weapons. Or at least theoretically they wouldn't. The point being is that this, again, the same weapon can be used for horrible things like destroying, you know, major countries and, 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 and more, but it could also be used as a defense mechanism. But this was not something that you had in the past. But you did have other things in the past. What did you have in the past? The Chida brings a beautiful insight about one part of the prayers that we have. In our morning bless, in our morning prayer, Shachrit, part of the prayer, and also we do it in Mincha as well, part of the prayer is reading a Tehilim number 67, which the Kabbalist masters say, this Mizmo, this Tehilim number 67, has extraordinary skulot, and the Chida says in Midbar Kedemot, Marechet Dalit, number 22, that he found the writings by the Arab Shlomo Luya. The Chida, for anyone who doesn't know, was not only an extraordinary Chacham, but he was a world traveler. He went literally all over the world. And he had very beautiful, fancy clothes. Literally one of a kind because he had to present the Jews of Israel as he was collecting tzedakah around the world. And he had a certain unique image that made every community love him and, and literally beg him to stay. But he had a certain attitude about himself and a certain persona that was unbelievable that he, one of the things actually he writes as a side note before we get to the story is mentioned by Rabbi Ephraim in Achtov Li Israel in his uh, third volume 
he mentions in page uh, 15, Tetvav, when it comes to the Kvoda Torah, the honor of Torah, unfortunately, the honor of Torah has deteriorated in recent years. And one of the places that it's deteriorated the most is in the from communities. While they learn Torah, the honor of Torah has gone down. How so? Because there are, unfortunately, many from Jews, Talmidei Chachamim, and, and, and you know, communities that are have a lot of Torah, but not necessarily a lot of money. Different people come into those communities with money and uh, push their weight. And the humble Bnei Torah give these people that are not really very uh, big Talmidei Chachamim, but they have a lot of money. And in essence, they say it's a bala me'az a bala de'a. Like whoever has the hundred has the opinion. And the guy that has the money, in essence, treats himself as if he's a genius. This actually happened today, or well, not today, in the last couple of days, with this Ama'aretz, complete ignoramus, came to our uh, kolel in Eretz Yisrael. And every time he comes to that community, I never met him myself, and I can't wait till I do, but apparently every time he comes, usually he has an entourage of a few religious people that, uh, you know, uh, walk wherever he walks, as if they're his shadow, and giving him all types of honor because they're waiting for some uh, charity. And uh, he pushes his weight everywhere and so on. And uh, anyway, he comes to our kolel, to a synagogue in Israel, and uh, he picks up uh, the recent book that Rabbi Ephraim uh, published, Ochachot V'Tochachot. And he comes up to Rabbi Ephraim and he says, What? What is this? You're going against the entire generation with such a book. <laughs> so, Rabbi Ephraim says, How so? How am I going against the entire generation? He says, what is this? Rebuke? Gehenom? Dean? This doesn't belong in this generation. This generation is only love. Everything love. This doesn't belong in this generation. Rafaim uh, looks at this guy, you know, and the rest of the people, unfortunately, this, this guy is a chutzpah. He did it even in the middle of the street. You know, everybody's quiet. They don't want to, you know, say anything because this rich guy, Rafaim obviously doesn't care. He says, listen, it says in our Torah that it will never change. And if you actually open the book and read it, you'll see that I didn't say anything from my opinion in the book. Everything has a source. Every single thing, every single word, every single uh, line has a source from the Torah. And that Torah will never change. He just walked away from this guy as if he was zero because he is a zero. But unfortunately, they don't treat him like a zero. They treat him like he is... The genius. People were scared to say anything. And this is not a uh, rare thing. In fact, Rabbi Fine wrote about this nearly 15 years ago. Or 10 years ago. And he writes that the guy that has the money thinks of himself as a genius. 
Whereas the guy that actually knows Torah turns into like a, uh, you know, a shepherd or a uh, someone that uh, holds the horse, like nothing. And the Chida already wrote about this a couple of hundred years ago in a Sefer Shiurei Bracha in Siman Resh Nun Hei Ot Aleph. And he says, due to our many sins, they allowed people to, our, the Torah scholars, to benefit from the public by collecting tzedakah. But what happened is, as a result of this, collecting tzedakah, where people don't know how to honor the Torah at the same time, the some of the wealthy, and even not necessarily so wealthy, have started to desecrate the Torah and its scholars as a result of it. Where in the previous generations, even the Kohanim that was supposed to get their, uh, the gifts of Keuna were known as they would not go and uh, take it from people if it came, it came. They wouldn't go and chase after it. Some people, the collecting stock have lost all shame. And they go and they do all types of things just for the sake of, you know, getting money from people. Things that are not necessarily, don't necessarily look good. And this turns into Chilul Hashem. And it leads to the people that are giving the money to disrespect the Torah. And ultimately, they lose faith in the Chachamim in general. And their mouth and their disrespect grows as a result of it. And further, he says, in Amut Tetzain, if I'm here, he brings the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin. that uh, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Lazar says, to what, is a, uh, what does a Talmit Chacham look like in front of an ignorant person? In the beginning, he looks to him like a tool of gold. But after he starts pitching him for money, or start, he starts talking to him like a regular person, he looks to him like a tool of Silver. After he gets some money from him, he looks like him like he's a piece of clay. And there's no way of fixing it. And Rashi says over there, that's because the way he's doing it, the way he's, uh, he's collecting tzedakah and so on is not in the way that he's uh, supposed to and that, that way, that's how he lost his value. And the Rabbeinu Meiri, that the Rav Ephraim brings over here, he says that the Rabbanut, the, the, the uh, Chachamim, have become hated in the eyes of people 
because of how they behave when it comes to this money. Meaning that it's perfectly fine to collect staka from people because you're doing them a favor. When you donate to Bezat Hashem, for example, you're doing yourself a favor. Because HaKadosh Baruch Hu would give to us with or without you. With all due respect and gratitude to all of those that give and have given and will give when you give to the organization or you give to me personally or any of the other rabbis, you're doing yourself a favor. It's not the opposite. Now, when the Chacham forgets that, or at the very least, he treats the donor as if the donor is saving him, as if life wouldn't, you know, continue without his help, as if we can't do this without you, even if the donor gives, that transaction, more times than not, as the Meiri says, as the Chida says, as the Gemara says in the name of Rabbi Eliezer, and many other places, even if he gives you, he loses respect. Not just for that Chacham, but for Chachamim in general. For Chachamim in general. So, this is one of the things that's very, very important for people to know that certainly when you are, you need, you have some type of campaign, you want to build the yeshiva, you want to feed the poor, whatever it is, Certainly, you need to tell people because it's for their merit. You want to help them. You want to get them to be partners in this thing. This is what Rebbe Kadosh, Rabbi Udanasi, who was a multi-billionaire himself, he would still himself get staka from his rich friends in order to give them merits, not because he needed their money. And the Torah itself talks about staka and how important it is. It's to save a person's life, save his marriage, save a lot of things, give him merits of going to Olam Abba. Uh, uh, Rabbi Akiva says how staka saves people from Gehenom, all types of things. There's a lot of merits to it, so certainly it's important to help people give tzedakah, but never lose the truth and make people think that they are your saving uh, uh, grace of some kind. They are your, no, no, no. They're doing good. Chazaku Baruch. Thank you very much for, for making the, the choice of, of contributing. But don't go further than that. And make people believe as if uh, they're the only way that uh, this could have happened. Because what ends up happening is that people lose respect for the Torah that way. And many times what ends up happening is that they start justifying their sins as a result of their charitable giving. Where I actually know this one guy, who's a, I've spoken to you guys about him before. He's a big rasha. Kofer gamu. Complete apikos doesn't keep anything but every bet knesset that he goes to here in florida they give him aliyot they give him respect why he buy he donates a fortune every synagogue they have the uh the uh different uh auctions he always buys the most expensive aliyah he doesn't even go up himself many times he just buys oh yeah the rabbi is fifteen thousand. he throws money around like it's nothing but he drives to shul on yom kippur he doesn't keep anything why? Because unfortunately he saw that the rabbis, simply you can buy many of them. 
And this is a very, very terrible thing. It's a disservice to the Torah, and needless to say, it's a disservice to the guy himself. But one of the things that the Torah tells us is that every single thing that we do, we have to always make sure to, to look at the past. Look at the Chachamim. Look at what they did. And then know which direction is really the right direction. Because even though innovation and the future and, and, uh, and uh, peace and friendliness sounds good, it could very well be a product of the imagination. Now going back to our issue at hand that we mentioned with the Chida in the first place, where the Chida says that this Psalm number 67 in our prayers of Shachrit and also Mincha has extraordinary powers. And although we don't have bombs, like atomic bombs, we don't need them. Why? Because a person can have the tools of the Torah that are from ancient history do a lot more for him than anything else. For example, this Tehilim is a special Tehilim that you probably saw it in your life where it's shaped like a menorah. Probably saw it on the wall in the synagogue, maybe online. It's like this. And this is part of our prayer every day. And the Chida said, it's very good for a Jew to read this from this shape at least once a day because it could bring him a lot of protection. How much protection? David Melech. David Melech had Rocha Kodesh and he received this Tehilim. But before him, Moshe Rabbeinu got it at Mount Sinai. Akadosh Baruch Hu showed this Tehilim in the shape of a menorah at Mount Sinai. He said, Use this Tehilim as a tool for protection against all evil. David Melech had, years later, the same Ruach HaKodesh, same message in the Ruach HaKodesh to use this Tehilim. And David would have this Tehilim, this Psalm, number 67, engraved on his shield. You know, many people think that, you know, David Melech had a shield in the shape of him again, David. That's actually debatable. But what we, don't, what we do know for sure is that on the inside of his shield, he had this Tehilim engraved in the inside of his shield, in the shape of a menorah, and therefore he was able to look at the name of HaKadosh Baruch Hu even during battle. And therefore each time he would shoot an arrow, he would kill 900 people with one arrow. He was still upset because he knew that if he was a perfect tzaddik, he would kill a thousand with a single arrow. The point is none of us are going out there in the field shooting anybody with arrows. But if David Melech our great forefather, the forefather of the Mashiach, if he can kill 900 enemies with a single arrow because he had such cleaving to HaKadosh Baruch Hu by looking at his name, even during battle, needless to say, this could be good for us. So it's good for a person to look at it, to do it at least once a day. During prayer it is usually the easiest time to do it. If you could do it from a cleft, uh, you know, that's uh, that's even better, the Chida says. 
But the point is, is that while the newer generation will think that the bombs and the guns and all that other stuff is better, the truth is, is that many times it's really only a product of the imagination because the past may not have had the same innovation. It certainly did have an extraordinary wealth. Now, we're going to elaborate on this battle between the past and the present in the next segment because that's where it goes into but i'm going to give you something that is the culmination of this shiur that is going to give us a lot of food for thought because where does this all go to how does this all apply now the keilot that we mentioned in the beginning that fight with each other whether it's the Ashkenazim versus the Sfaradim, or it's within the Sfaradim to each other, the Libyan Jews fighting with the Moroccan Jews who has better food, or against the Yemenites, or the Yemenites against the uh, other types of Jews, all fighting against each other. Usually these fights are not fights between Chachamim, but rather between ignorant people. He thinks that the Chumus of his tradition is the best. He thinks that the, you know, this such and such dish is the best according to his tradition. And they literally treat this as if it's like the 13 principles of faith or maybe even the 10 commandments. But the truth is, if you look at the history of the Libyan Jews, Egyptian Jews, Yemenite Jews, Syrian Jews, different types of Ashkenazi Jews. What put them on the map? Was it their food? Was it the chulent? Was it the kefilte fish? Was it the zbanave kukla? What was it? It wasn't the food. Everybody likes good food, but that's not what put my forefathers on the map. Everybody likes good food. But that's not what put the Ashkenazi Jews on the map. What put them on the map? Chachamim. Chachamim like the Chafetz Chaim. Like Rav Wasserman. Like the Chida. Like the Chazonish. Like the Benish Chai. These extraordinary Chachamim. That's what put Jews on the map. And when we think that our color, our food, our superficial things are what makes us special or better, then unfortunately, we are acquiring a horrible trait from Edom. Because what does Edom do? I heard Rav Tobias Singer, Sheikh once say this, and he says that one of the ways that the Christian missionaries fool millions of people is by taking advantage of people's weaknesses. And there are two major weaknesses. And this is the trait of Esav. Esav, on one hand, takes advantage of people's weaknesses and tells them they can't do. You can't do. You're a sinner. You're a loser. 
You need somebody to save you. You can't save yourself. You already sinned. You already made a mistake. You can't help yourself. He pretty much convinces people that you're a loser and you're never going to change. But that's not the way that HaKadosh Baruch Hu created you. In fact, HaKadosh Baruch Hu created you to change, to improve. And he gave you the tools to do it. And therefore, Esav comes with another tool. To those people that think they can change and think that they can do better, what did he tell them? You're better than everybody else. Why do you need a middleman to talk to, like some rabbi or some sage? You can talk to God directly. Everybody's a prophet. So Esav goes to both extremes. He goes to the people that are degenerate, drug addicts, losers, and he tells them, you're never going to be able to get out of it. You made a mistake, live with that mistake. You need somebody to, to help you. And he goes to the arrogant, obnoxious, disgusting people that think they're better than everybody else, and he says to them, you are better than everybody else. You're right. You're right, you're better than everybody else. So why do you need anyone to help you talk to God? You can talk to God directly. This is something that you can see in society today. Most recently, it's notable in these people that are called Hebrew Israelites, formerly known as black Hebrew Israelites, but since they've decided to have some other people of darker colors, whether it be the Mexicans, Filipinas, or... or, uh, or Haitians, or pretty much anybody else that's willing to give them money and attention, they decide to join them too, just as long as they're not white. Unless you have a lot of money, then you can be white also, because we'll pretend like you're black, or your mother is black, or your ancestor is black, you just have a shade of white. And these arrogant, disgusting, ignorant people are portraying the Midot of Esav in plain sight. But of course... The average person doesn't even know that because the average person is the victim of this. It's either people that are down and out, losers, drug addicts, people that are sinners and they need somebody to save them, empower them. So what do they say? Listen, it's not your fault that you sinned. It's not your fault that you're down and out. It's not your fault that you live in such a place. The white man... The white man that pretends to be a Jew, he stole your identity. What? Yeah, he stole your identity. And then they go to the arrogant people, the ones that think that they're better than everybody else. You're right. You are better than everybody else. Do you know why? Because you're black. Wait, but how does that exactly make you better than everybody else again? You're black and therefore you're better at what? You're smarter? Not necessarily. There are certainly some people smarter than you. Even if you don't know who they are, there's always somebody smarter than you. And needless to say, if you go into the Jewish world of sages, of great chachamim throughout all of the generations, that if you combine all of your wisdom, it wouldn't be equal to a fingernail of theirs. You're better looking? Well, that depends who's looking at you. If it's your wife looking at you, you're 100% right. You are. 
But if it's his wife, she won't even look at you. So you're not better looking to her. So you're richer, possibly, but surely there's somebody that's richer than you. You're a better speaker? It depends. Do you speak all languages? Because some people speak in different languages and therefore they're better speaker than you in that language or to that crowd. So how are you better? How does being black make you better? But that's the thing. When people allow their imagination to run their life, they don't give any thought to things. They don't give any thought to things. They simply follow the imagination. And these so-called Hebrew Israelites, the Shaim Ahurim, wicked and cursed people, are the embodiment of a dome himself. Because that's exactly what they want. They want to pretend like they are victims while being in power at the same time. They're victims because somehow their identity was stolen. But they're in power because some delusional ideology that they create of how they somehow, they know the real Hebrew language even though we've been speaking Hebrew since day one. They know the Torah even though they just recently discovered that what it even says. Or at least parts of it. And this Rabotai is something that is growing in society. Because other people that are either losers that want to be empowered without doing anything for it, or arrogant, obnoxious people that want friends to justify their arrogance, are simply growing. Because the less we learn Torah, the more Kadosh Baruch Hu will empower the enemy because he needs to use them to wake us up. This is important for every single person to know because if you want to know which side you're on, you always have to look at the past. You can't look at the present. If the leadership that you have is celebrating your lowliness or your arrogance, two things that are considered abominable in the eyes of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. If your leadership and your teachings and your ways are, in so many words, empowering you for being a loser without you trying, and in so many words, tells you that you don't have to do anything in order to serve Hashem. You're simply the best just because it's you. That's not God. That's not Torah. That's Edom. If it tells you that you don't have to do anything because somebody died for you and therefore you could do whatever you want, that's not Torah. That's idol worship. If anybody tells you, you could just sit and relax. Act like as if you're a king and the world will serve you. You don't need to serve anything else, not even the king of kings. You're sadly mistaken. You're on the wrong path of Edom. On the other hand, if it tells you that you are the master, you are better than everybody else, 
You don't need tradition. You don't need the sages. You don't need anything. You could talk directly to God and you can, in so many words, become a prophet according to yourself. You're also going in the path of Edom. That's the path of Yeshua himself. Where's the right path? In the middle. The path that tells us you've made mistakes, you made sins. That makes you normal, but it doesn't make it okay. What can you do? Do tshuva. Repent. Stop making the sin. Say, I'm sorry for making the sin. Fix whatever you can if it's fixable. If you stole, give it back. If you said something bad, apologize. Whatever it is that you can do to fix it. And commit to never doing it again. By learning more Torah and learning how to not do this. Improve yourself. Don't stay where you are. And if the path tells you that I've already done a lot, I completed the shas in one year, I did this and I did that. No, 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 Habibi. Do you know how much you don't know? Do you know how much more you have to learn? There are literally millions of books, millions of books in the Torah, millions of books that are part of our oral Torah. Whether it's the Poskim, or it's the Gemara, or it's the Talmud Bavli, or the Yerushalmi, or the Zohar, or the uh, Shulchan Aruch, or the Midrashim. Oh, oh, oh. There's endless amount of books. Okay, so you finished a few. You know a few things. Guess what? You're still a long way from where the sages were just a few years ago. Needless to say, a hundred years ago. Needless to say, times a million, five hundred years ago. And in order for you to go in the right path, you need to know what the path looks like. You can't just create a path of your own. You have to know where the path looks like and that requires our tradition. That requires seeing where your rabbi was and his rabbi was and his rabbi's rabbi was and so on and so forth all the way to the prophets, all the way to Moshe Rabbeinu. And don't come and tell me, listen, somebody stole my identity, somebody stole this, somebody stole that, and I'm now, I'm... There's nothing like that. Judaism has always been here. It will always be here. No one stole it. No one can steal it. Anyone that wants to be Jewish is welcome to practice it, welcome to follow it, but there is a tradition. There is a law. And that law does not depend on your color. You could be black, blue, green, burgundy, Asian, Moroccan, uh, American, whatever can you want. You could be even a can of tuna. But if you want to be a Jew, you have to be a can of tuna that follows the Torah. That means if you weren't born of a Jewish mother, that means you have to convert to Judaism if you want to be a Jew. You can't just decide you're a Jew because your color is a certain color. It means nothing in Jewman. It means nothing. Your color literally means zero. The same as the food. The same as the, all of the superficial things that people argue about. Even people that were born Jewish. Where their grandparents were literally the biggest tzaddikim. If they didn't follow in the footsteps of the sages, if they didn't follow the Torah, they lost everything. The hummus, the pita, the falafel, 
and the color of your skin is not going to bring you into Gan Eden, is not going to make you a servant of Hashem. You know what's going to make you a servant of Hashem? Look into the Torah and fulfill all of it. And if somebody tells you you can't do it, that's only because they're following a sav. Moshe Rabbeinu says to Am Yisrael, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart to do it. Which means, HaKadosh Baruch Hu created you with the ability to follow the Torah, to speak the Torah to such an extent that that's what you were created for. Meaning that out of all the things that you do good, you could be good at building houses, you could be good at accounting, you could be good at investments, you could be good at climbing, you could be good at a lot of things. But guess what you're the best at? At following the Torah. You just don't know it yet because you haven't done it. Once you follow the Torah, you'll see that you're better at the Torah than you are at anything else, even if you're an expert in other things. But if you put the same effort into the Torah as you do in anything else, you will see how the verse comes to life where you are better at this than anything else out there. So on one end, we see that the future, the innovations can be used for good where you have digital media allowing us to learn Torah with people around the world. But at the same token, these innovations are used by the wicked people to spread heresy, to spread idol worship, to spread hatred. On one end, the innovation is important for us because it gives us the ambition to keep doing more things, to make Torah more accessible to people, to let more people know of the truth. On the other end, this very same innovation can make people proud and arrogant and think that the tradition is no longer relevant because somehow the iPhone made you a better person or even smarter. Therefore, we have to also look at the tradition itself. What has worked and what has failed throughout history? And one that knows their history is bound to succeed, whereas one that doesn't is bound to repeat the mistakes. It may be his will that each and every single one of us follows the Torah exactly as our forefathers have and utilizes the innovations that we have today to publish it even further. Thank you for learning with me. May Hashem bless each and every single one of you. And Be'ezot Hashem, we will see each other again later this week. זה ידידי הרב ירון ראובן שמסר את נפשו ומוסר את נפשו ולכן ידידיי ואהוביי אני רוצה לעשות לו כאן הפתעה הערב אני צריך מכם עשרה או בחורים או אברכים שיקבלו עליהם ללמוד את השס בשנה שבע דפים ליום שלוש וחצי שעות ביום בעזרת השם יזכו במלגה מכובדת מארגון בעזרת השם שס בשנה מי שהראשון מוזמן הראשונים יבואו לשולחן הנשיאות בזריזות, בזריזות. ברוך השם, 17 לומדי תורה שקיבלו על עצמם את סיום השס. 
17 סיומי ש"ס בשנה לכבודה של תורה, לכבוד עם ישראל, לכבוד הקדוש ברוך הוא שישתבח בבניו ויאמר בני בכורי ישראל, עמלי תורה שקיבלו על עצמם לבוא וללמוד שבע דפים ביום, לבוא ולזכות את עם ישראל. ברוכים תהיו.